praying about this evening and what I wanted to do, and I felt just to take, and this is should be a little shorter tonight, I'm going to take the rest of our time, and tonight we're going to, we're just going to talk about some Bible reading principles. Now, you can go ahead and be seated. Let me just start by asking, does anybody in the room feel like, you know, I wish in my own personal Bible study time, in my own Bible reading time, I was doing a little better, or I, I felt a little more comfortable with what I'm doing. Anybody ever feel like that? I feel like I would just like to understand the Bible a little more for myself. So I have good news for you. Um, I'm going to give you just a little bit of a preview. Upcoming in our next big group learning in August, we are going to be doing a series on reading your Bible. And so just food for thought. Tonight is just maybe a little bit of a glimpse of that. We'll be covering different things come August. If you want to get technical, the proper term for it is hermeneutics, which sounds big and fancy, and really all that means is how to interpret your Bible, how to read your Bible. But our August big group learning, here's your little preview, is going to be talking about Bible study uh, techniques, some things we can learn about better reading and learning and growing in our own Bible time. I will tell you a secret right now. Because sometimes we come to the Word of God and we see its weightiness and its significance, which is true, and it's there. And we make more of it than really we have to. I'll throw out another fun term that four people in here probably know. And it always cracks me up because the technical term for this is the perspicuity of Scripture which is this big fancy word that means it's easy to understand. And that word is not easy to understand. So that has always cracked me up in theological terms. We talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, and we use this obscure term to talk about how easy the Bible is to actually understand. God's word comes through the truth of his scripture. The, the truth of his scripture speaks to us if, if we will let it. And there are things we can do to allow God's voice through the scriptures to speak to us. And I will give you the biggest one right now, preview for August. You ready for how complicated this is? Here is the number one thing you can do to better understand the Bible as you are reading scripture. You ready for this? I can reduce it to two words. Prepare to be blown away. Slow down. You're shocked, aren't you? So tonight we're going to do a little exercise in reading slow. Really, seriously, just slow down. Sometimes we just, we get in a rush. I'm very guilty of this. I get up in the morning. It's before work. I got 15 or 20 minutes. I want to get in a little Bible reading before my day gets going. And the longer you serve God, the more comfortable you become with the scriptures. And you sit down to read a passage, and you've read this scripture multiple times. And so you are reading it, but you're kind of just glossing over it. You are reading it. Some of it is speaking to you, but, but you're just going too fast. And one of the best things we can do when we read scripture is just simply slow down. I'm going to step on a few more toes. How many of you have ever used a bread chart or a Bible reading program or something to help you walk through the Bible through the course of a year? Little secret, don't tell anyone. I hate those things. 
I can't stand them. I just about despise them. I get the principle of it. And you should read your Bible. And as a Christian who is growing in a walk with God, you need to be familiar with the scriptures. And I encourage you to read all the way through your Bible. But it's not practical for many people and not realistic that they're going to get all the way through it in a year. So I will give you the Desi Lugo method of Bible teaching and interpretation. I would rather it take you a decade to read through your Bible and you actually absorb it than to check the box and make sure that you've read through a Bible study reading program and you got it completed in X amount of time. All right? I'll tell you another secret. I rarely read all the way through the Bible in a year. Okay? It's all right. There's no golden rule. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your, your faith in me was just brought way down. Your confidence in my ability to discern the scriptures just lowered a whole bunch because I don't read all the way through the Bible in a year. What's important is that you read and you allow God to speak to you. Sometimes I will find myself in an area and I may park there for months at a time. Maybe it's the Psalms. Maybe right now for me, it's the Old Testament prophets, which I'm actually enjoying because I know in my own and, and as a general rule, you know, we don't tend to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament prophets. I just spent a month reading through Ezekiel. So what? The point is that I read it slow. I spent time thinking about it. I allowed the scripture to speak to me. Just slow down. We're going to walk through an exercise tonight and look at a few things, but I tell you, one of the best things you can do to help you in your Bible reading is just simply slow down. I had a family member who I talked to uh, who was feeling very guilty because she was in a church and they used a Bible reading program. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying they're evil or something. I just personally don't like them. And she was wrestling with the fact that she could not keep up with this Bible reading program. And she did it, but she felt like she was just, you know, she was marking a box off. And, she was, and I told her, so throw it out the window. You know, if it takes you the next two years to read through the scriptures, so what? Just read the scriptures. Go at a pace that works for you. Now, you've heard your pastor say things like this, so I know I'm not going to get in trouble for this one. Find a translation that works for you. And we'll talk about, by the way, we are going to talk about interpretation and translation and the canon and all of that coming up in August. So stay tuned. Again, we're going to get to some of this when we get to August. But if one translation is easier for you to understand than another... Read the translation that works for you. I'll give you another preview of August because here's my favorite answer. And I get asked this on occasion. What is the best Bible translation? And I will give you the best answer to that question. Are you ready? So go ahead, ask me. What is the best Bible translation? The one that gets you to read it. Seriously. If one makes more sense to you, if you're more comfortable with one, allow God's voice to come through the scriptures. Allow it to speak to you and read at a pace that works for you. Read at a pace that makes sense to you. Now, you notice up on the screen, it says Ephesians chapter 2. There's no special significance to Ephesians chapter 2. I literally, this afternoon, grabbed a chapter. Seriously, just for the purpose of this exercise, I am familiar with Ephesians, so this is something I'm very, very comfortable with. Okay, and we are just going to, over the next 
15 minutes or so, we're just going to read Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to do a slow reading of it. And I'm going to draw out a few things. And hopefully you'll get something out of this exercise that you can take home and you can begin to implement if you're not already doing in your own Bible reading time. There's another term that you have probably, I, in fact, I know you have heard it around here because your pastor uses it all the time. He calls it a close reading of the scripture. He and I are talking about the same thing. I I say slow reading. He says a close reading. We mean the same thing. And while he may not have walked through it at some point, step by step, you have seen him model this many, many, many times. In fact, if you were listening at all earlier tonight, you already had an example of this where he took a passage out of the scriptures and we just simply walked through it one verse at a time and he wasn't in a hurry and we just talked about what it meant. One more final quick little thing before we jump in here. Here's another little nugget for you to take home. Think of yourself when you are reading the scriptures as somewhat of an investigative reporter. Any of you ever take a journalism class, either in high school or college or anything like that? So you know the reporter questions if you did, right? Who, what, when, where, why? These things apply to scripture as well. Ask yourself these questions and see if you can answer them. So for the sake of time, I'm going to quickly clip through some of this just for Ephesians to give you a little context when we get into chapter 2 because we're jumping into the middle of this letter. So who is this letter written to? This letter was written to the church at Ephesus. It was written by the Apostle Paul probably in the early 60s, 61, 62 AD, best we can tell. The Apostle Paul has been gone from this church for many years at this point. The congregation has continued to grow. Ephesus is the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and by this point, it may even be the largest Christian congregation. It is not one specific place. It is actually a large network of house churches all throughout this metropolitan area. It is a very mixed congregation, and you'll see that as we go through the letter. It started as a predominantly Jewish And so they had a good, strong biblical foundation, and it quickly grew and became a predominantly Greek or Gentile congregation, but it was a blend of the two. So it's got strong Jewish roots. You've probably got some seasoned elders in the church who really know the scriptures, but you also have a big ethnic makeup of a diversity of people. It is a very superstitious area. Ephesians, the Ephesus location was known for its use of magic and talismans and all kinds of things like that. So it's a highly pagan area, a highly influential area, and yet the church is thriving in this environment. Paul probably spent more time in Ephesus than he did in any other location. He didn't get to it till his third missionary journey, but once he got there and was able to establish a church, he spent somewhere between two and a half and three years in Ephesus. Now, if you read your scriptures, you will see there are places where Paul was there two weeks before they ran him out of town. So to spend almost three years in one location, that's a long time for him to settle down and really establish a work. So this is a well-rounded, well-grounded, highly established church. And really, it's a group of churches all throughout this metro area. Paul has been gone for a while. And so now he is writing a letter back to these people to offer encouragement. Why? Often when you read scriptures, especially when it comes to the epistles, the letters written by the apostles to these churches, there's a very clear, specific reason why the letter was written. 
Sometimes they're correctives, such as 1 Corinthians. Sometimes it's a rebuke, such as Galatians, where Paul has really pretty much lost his temper. And maybe we'll get to that in August. You heard our pastor make reference to it, I believe, this morning. Um, It's a very short-tempered letter. He insults them very publicly. We miss some of this, okay, due to cultural gaps, but it's a rebuke. We get to Ephesians. What's going on here? This is a letter full of admonition and warmth and praise. When you just read the letter itself, you see it's a very kind letter. It's a very encouraging letter. There's no corrective in Ephesians. So Paul is not writing to um, shift and alter some abuse or some weird thing. That's, it's a, a hugely different tone than what we see in 1 Corinthians when we get to Ephesians. So this is a very form, this is a very warm letter, a friendly letter. Uh, think of it like grandpa writing a letter to his grandkids and he's proud of them and he's praising them and he wants to continue to encourage them to do well. And that's kind of the tone we get with Ephesians. Having said this kind of who, what, when, where, why quickly, I know I didn't give you much time, but I just wanted to work through that. Let's now turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll just look at what a slow, or as our pastor refers to it, a close reading of Scripture may look like. Now, we're jumping into the middle of a passage. One more thing to keep in mind, chapter and verse was added much later. When Paul wrote this letter to this church, there was no chapter 2. So we are, we are kind of jumping in the middle of a thought. Oftentimes, in the New Testament especially, they've done a pretty decent job of putting chapter breaks where there are transitions in thought. Here we go. Reading out of the New Living Translation. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sin. Notice past tense, though. We're talking to an established church. A well group of believers, he's reminding them of what their past looked like. Church is predominantly a Gentile congregation at this point. You will see that as we work through this. So he's reminding them, you used to live a certain way. Implication being, now something's different. Verse 2. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. This commander of the unseen world. I don't have time to get into it tonight, but Ephesians is full of this imagery of this kind of cosmic spiritual battle that's going on in the background in this unseen world. This would have been very, very familiar to these people. Why? I just mentioned it briefly. But Ephesus, the location where they were, was known for its magical practices. It was world-renowned at that time for its magicians, for its magic shops where you could go buy talismans and special good luck charms and things like that. So it's a highly, highly pagan culture. It's a highly pluralistic, pantheistic culture full of many, many different gods. And so these are people who are very, very aware now that they have become Christians. They serve one God, the true, the living God. And they're surrounded by a world that practices magic, that practices the dark arts, that practices all kinds of pagan practices and religious festivals and other things. So this is very real to him when he's talking about this idea of this commander of this unseen world, this dark world, very familiar language. And he's reminding them, you used to serve that. Now, your life is different. 
And that commander of this unseen world is who is at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. He's associating this with rebellion, not just ignorance. See that distinction there? He's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Verse 3. All of us used to live that way. Who? All. So now he's just taken a step back, and we've gotten a little more inclusive. It's not just you ignorant Gentiles who used to live in a pagan lifestyle. Paul includes everybody in the statement. He said, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So he just leveled the playing field. You're going to continue to see that through the chapter. It's not a Jew versus Gentile thing. He said, we all used to be this way. We were all subject to God's anger. As if that wasn't clear enough, look at the way the verse ends. Just like everyone else. So he's putting all people on equal footing. All of us are broken. All of us are sinful. All of us are rebellious. Verse 4. But God. But God is so rich and mercy. And he loved us so much. That is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. So he starts by saying, we're all broken. We all deserve God's wrath, his anger. But he is so rich in mercy. And he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, remember verse 1, once you were dead, so now he's saying, even though you were dead because of those sins, he gave us life. But watch in the Christian world how we flip everything on its head. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. You were dead in your sins and deserved God's anger. But when Christ came back from the dead, physical death, he gave you spiritual new life. And then he makes this parenthetical statement as an aside. By the way, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So did you earn it? No. Do you deserve it? No. Who gives it to us? It's God, and it's through his grace. Verse 6. He raised us from the dead along with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. What is the direction of this verse? I mean that literally. Think, think direction. What kind of direction do you see in this verse? We see this ascension, right? You were dead, but he raised, raised, Christ from the dead, and he raised you along with him. But he didn't just bring you from a dead state to an upright state. Look, he brought us up. Where? Up into heavenly realms. So you have now, with Christ, ascended higher than you would have been capable by yourself. And why? 
because you're united with Christ. So we see this elevation. It's not just a resurrection being brought back from the dead, but it's being brought back from the dead and into something greater than you had before, something greater than you could have done yourself. Verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Notice this grace idea keeps talking again. How much of this is benefit? How much of this has to do with us, really, at this point? Just basic grammar lesson. Who's the subject of all these sentences? It's all about God and his grace. It's not about you. It's never been about you. I know that flies in the face of our Western American culture, but it's really all about God and his grace. Verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Think back to verse 5. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. Now we are here in verse 8. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. So what are, what are we emphasizing over and over? Paul is trying to get this very clear picture. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's God's grace that saves you. Look at verse 9. Do you see this theme? As it continues? He keeps saying the same thing over and over in multiple different ways. So that ought to draw our attention that this is an important theme in this section of Scripture. Look at verse 9. Salvation is not a reward. If it's a reward, then you earn it. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Look at me. I'm saved. So what? I mean, you didn't earn that. It's not your reward. It's not an attaboy kind of thing. It's about the one who saved us. Verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Two things I'll point out in the scripture. When did he plan? Long ago. Again, we're just reading slow. Would you take time with this? It's not an accident either. God's not on plan B. There's no cosmic, oops, I better correct this right now. He's saying, God planned this long, long, long ago. And what does he have for you? Remember, we deserve God's anger, his wrath. He said this earlier in the chapter. But instead, God has good things planned for us. And he says, we are his masterpiece. Greek word there, we don't have time to do a language study tonight, is the idea of something that is the final project, think like a trade or a union. Someone becomes a master craftsman. And in order to become a master craftsman, you have to create a masterpiece. It is your final work as a journeyman that proves you are now a professional. You have mastered this trade. And he said, God looks at us, even in our broken state, even when we deserve his wrath, and he rescues us, and he pulls us up into the heavens even more than we deserve, and he calls us his masterpiece, the high point of creation. 
He loves you very much. God, who is so rich in mercy and loves you very much, calls you the greatest thing he has made. Verse 11. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who are proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. So now we see this division. He's pointing out you, now he's speaking specifically to the Gentiles, used to be this way, and you were on the outside, and those proud Jews who were so circumcised, but he said it really didn't do anything for them. It was only on the outside. It didn't affect their heart. Verse 12. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God, without hope. So notice those two are linked. Hope comes from God. No God, no hope. And you used to be that way. You were separated, you were off, you were other, you were something else. And you didn't have citizenship. And by the way, in the Roman world, at that time, most people did not have citizenship in a very earthly sense. Citizenship was reserved for a small group of people who had wealth and influence and power. Most of the readers of this letter, most of the hearers of this letter would not have had citizenship. And he points out to them, you know, not only do you not have citizenship here as a Roman citizenship, you didn't have citizenship with God. You were pushed out, and you were on the outside. But he doesn't leave it there. Next verse, 13. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through your good actions. No, we see this theme over and over again. Through what? Through the blood of Christ. You deserve God's wrath, but he loves you, and he's full of mercy, and he considers you his masterpiece, and he raised you from the dead, and he ascends you up into the heights of heaven, and it's through his blood, and it's through his grace that you're now united with him. Again, who's the subject of all these sentences? It's God. It's all about God. Verse 14. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on that cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. We see it physically in the temple and that veil was torn. And Paul uses this metaphor, this idea, I like to think of it as a big stone wall, this hard, hard divide between Jews, God's special chosen people, Everybody else, collective name for that, the Gentiles. But at Calvary, he took on that brokenness himself. And in the act of dying, he broke down that stone wall that separates all these people. And he gathers them all together and he says, you're mine. And he makes something new. And they're his people, not God's chosen nation of Israel, and the other, but something new, something even better. Verse 15. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. 
physically speaking, there's still a lot of tension between these Gentiles and these Jews outside of the Christian community. But he's saying within the church, God has done something new. He's done something special, his masterpiece, and he brought you together, and now you're one people. So how important is it that you're circumcised? It's not. How important is it that you've got this great Jewish pedigree, which Paul has? It's not. How important is it that you are a Roman citizen, which Paul is? It's not. So all these things that have value from a worldly perspective, he's tearing it down. And he said, that that stuff doesn't matter. What's important is that you're God's, and he thinks you're special and valuable and the best thing he's ever done. And you're a new thing, this new group that he has. Verse 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other, both sides, hostility toward each other was put to death. So, how much room in God's creation in this new thing that he's doing, how much room is there for racism? How much room is there for prejudice, ethnic cleansing, ethnic divisions? Okay, I'm not erasing our cultural identity. Don't misunderstand me. But this idea, well, those people are okay and they can worship God over there and we'll do our thing over here and they can have their church. That is ridiculous. And it's not scriptural. And it's not what God intended. And he paid for it with death on the cross. This was important enough to God that he died for it. And our hostility towards each other, all these cultural and ethnic tensions that people deal with because of a broken, sinful world, Paul says in God, in Christ's kingdom, it's all torn down. That wall, broken. Paid for with his death. That hostility has to end. You're one people, and it's found in Christ. Verse 17. He brought this good news, often translated in older English translations as gospel. The word gospel means the good news. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to those Jews who were near. So he's reaching out to everybody. Verse 18. Now all of us can come to the Father through different channels through our separated churches, through our own styles of worship, through our ethnic divisions. No, 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 no. Now, we all come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. What unites us together? Christ. How do we come to him? It's through the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to get into this tonight, but we live in a broken world with very real social justice problems, very real ethnic racial issues. No program, no government, no initiative is ever going to be able to fix that because it's a sin problem. And the only thing that can really break down those walls is the Holy Spirit. And we see that very clearly in Scripture. It is the same Holy Spirit given to everyone that unites them together as one unified body, Christ's body, his 
masterpiece. Verse 19. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Verse 20. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone. In the ancient world, they didn't have modern laser leveling and everything like that. You spent extra time setting that first cornerstone. It had to be plumb and it had to be level because then you built everything out and up off of that stone. So it was extremely important that the cornerstone was set just right or the building would be crooked. And the cornerstone of God's kingdom is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple in the Lord. And then verse 22, through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his what? By his spirit. Who's the theme of this chapter? Who's this chapter about? God. What's our role in this? To accept what he's done for us. How important are our accomplishments in this? They're not. You can't brag about it. It's a gift. It's not a reward. You didn't earn it. And what unites us, as you stand with me, what unites us all together? It's God's spirit. And what kind of people are we? We are God's people, this new special thing that he's done. And what binds it all together is his spirit, his grace, his price that he paid. And it's a masterpiece. It's the pinnacle of creation. It's the neatest thing God has ever done is that he joins all of us together from all of our different backgrounds and all of our different cultural preferences. And it's his one and same spirit that lives inside of all of us that allows us to be part of that body. Aren't you so grateful for that? Thank you, Jesus. But God who 